Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. Uh, my name is Declan Ferbergillick and uh, I'm filling in for Daniel James tonight on um, 3RRR. The show is The Mission. I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the country that I'm broadcasting from, probably most people are listening on, uh, and where I'm blessed and lucky to to be to have been welcome to live um and that's the Wurundjeri Wurundjeri country Kulin country Bunurong Woiwurrung country um so pay my respects to those people who came before and took care of this country and who will come ahead of us and who will come after us and take care of the country and pay my respects to all those elders and all those emerging elders and all the living descendants of those people who take care of this country. And um quick shout-out as well to all Jar Jar Rung Mob, um, which is where I'm blessed and graced to live myself at the moment as an Aranda man living away from country, um, up there around what's known as the Castlemaine region or central Victoria, Goldfields country. So shout-outs to... Uncle Rick and Auntie Julie up there and all the mob. Um, thanks for having me live there. As I said, uh, my name is Declan Ferbergillick. Some of you might know me as Gizmo D. Um, filling in for Daniel James tonight on um, on this episode of The Mission and I'm going to be with you actually next Tuesday, the 9th, and then next the Tuesday after that, the 16th of June as well. Um, lucky enough to have been invited back into the Triple R studios. Uh, I'm actually on site here live um, broadcasting down in um, in East Brunny. Um, so yeah, it's um it feels um like a real blessing to have to have the resources and the platform and to be able to come in and sit at this seat and speak to you all. Um, at what I think probably everyone would agree is um, a pretty a pretty um pretty electric time in history um bit of an electric shock to the system um to our systems and the systems under which we find ourselves living um yeah it certainly feels like we're living in the pages of a history book at the moment and um just want to take a moment to um say thank you for tuning in um, I know there's a lot of people experiencing a lot of pain at the moment and and experiencing a lot of confusion and um yeah it's um it's a really difficult time and I've been getting calls from people just checking in and saying good day and ask how I'm doing and um I've really appreciated that and um so I want to say thank you to anyone who's made the effort to reach out to me and um just want to say thank you to anyone who's making that effort to connect with one another at the moment because um, there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of confusion and um, I know the social media cycle can um, 
as informative as it is and as important and as vital as it is, um, I know it can, I know it can um, really kind of pull you in and um, not let you go. So, just want to thank you for taking a moment to tune into a slower form of media that we do broadcast here on Triple R, um, and just acknowledge you and your ancestors and the country wherever you're listening on and. Um, send you out some love for this broadcast this evening and um, thank you for getting up this morning and giving yourself, giving your energy to the day, however you did that. And um, shout out to all the all the Koori mob listening and all the First Nations and Aboriginal people around Australia and around the world um, and all the people fighting the good fight around this whole planet that is our only home. Uh, and, it, and it brings me real pride to be able to jump on the air and and, um, and bring you media um, at this pivotal time. Um, I've got a lot of talks radio tonight on the show and I'm really excited about that. I'm going to have a yarn with a gentleman named Jamie Lowe who is the National Native Title Council's Chief Executive. going to talk to him at about 10 past 7 regarding Rio Tinto's recent uh, desecration of sacred sites in the Western Pilbara. I'm going to have it yarn with him about the state of native title law in uh, this country in general, where it is, where it might be going next, and um, how effective it is as a tool for blackfellas to um, take control of our cultural heritage and our lands and our country. Um, also brings me great pleasure to have a yarn with Thea Anamara Perkins, uh, who is a young um, visual artist who um, lives in Redfern but actually has family ties as an Arunda person to Central Australia, which is where I'm from. So excited to have a yarn with Thea and um, she has actually just won um, an award from Oz Council, um, f- which they call Dreaming Award for Emerging Artists. Uh, my name's Declan Ferbergillick. You're on 3 Triple R. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Now, on the weekend before last, uh, mining giant Rio Tinto blasted a cave in Dukin Gorge in the Hammersley Ranges, about 60 kilometres from Mount Tom Price, which is a mining town, about 60 k's inland from the central coast of WA. Uh, the cave was one of the oldest of its kind in the Western Pilbara region, which is rich in iron ore, um, and it was the only inland site in Australia to show signs of continual human occupation through the last ice age. Uh, now the cave, along with another nearby sacred site, was of profound cultural and historical significance to the Putukunti, Kurama and the Pinakura mobs and was home to uh, profoundly sacred items and genetic artefacts linking um, the living PKKP, um, that's the shorthand for that mob, uh, the traditional owners to their ancestral country and stories and songlines. Now, um, on one hand, Rio Tinto have since apologised for the destruction of the site, but on the other hand, um, they've done nothing illegal according to Western Australia's somewhat outdated native title laws. Uh, I have on the line to discuss the matter Jamie Lowe, who's a Gunditjmara Jabarung man and uh, Chief Executive of the National Native Title Council, as well as a member of Victoria's Treaty Assembly. Uh, Jamie, thanks for calling in and welcome to the mission, bud. How are you? 
Yeah, good, bruv. How are you doing? Yeah, good, man. Where are you calling in from today? Uh, it's down on um, Wetherong Country, Ocean um, ocean Growth. Oh, beautiful. My mum lives down there, actually. She just lives in St. Leonard's there. Oh, deadly. Southern Road. That's gorgeous. <laughs> I was there the other day, and I went, yeah, went for a walk on that Ocean Grove Beach. It's really stunning. We got a really beautiful autumn day. It was sunny. Yeah, man. Well, you have to drop me a line next time and catch up. Totally, man. Now, um, now, just to jump straight into these questions, um, how did the mob and the TOs up in that Western Pilbara region find themselves in this position whereby Rio Tinto could legally blast um, such an important site? Well, I think in the intro you spoke about the law there. Um, it's an outdated um, you know, cultural heritage act that they have there, which dates back to 1972. Um, through that through that process, um, which I think was approved in 2013 for this particular site, um, and then the site was, um, I guess, identified um, some about 12 to 18 months after that, and after the management plan was um, was approved. By the, um, by the by the WA government, so within the laws there, um, there's no recourse. So once it's kind of signed, signed, there's no recourse. So you know, that was seven odd years ago, the site was kind of uncovered or presented um, as a site of um, significance um, after further exploration, and you know, and I don't know the details of the kind of the, the fight that they took to um, the state or the federal government or, or Rio, but. Um, the end results um, pretty devastating. Yeah, and I actually had a read this week, and I saw that between that time when they had the initial approval, there were um, there were some further archaeological digs, and the site went from people were considering it it was like you know maybe twenty thousand years old, and people and an archaeological yeah. dig found that it was more like forty six. Um, yeah. But it's from what I understand, once that once it's granted, there's there's very limited recourse for any kind of. Um, for, for for the mob to have, um, you know, to, to, to close it or to, to make any further argument, it's sort yeah. of set, hey? Yeah, that's right. So in other states and jurisdictions, you have a kind of contingency um, plan in place. So if they do find something um, through the course of construction, which happens a lot, something that's not identified, gets identified through earth moving or whatever, there's actually contingencies that can get triggered. And so... Can be diverted, shifted, etc. You can negotiate that, but within the WA legislation, doesn't allow for that. So their only recourse was to apply to the through the environmental and the federal government um, laws to um to get a stay. Yeah, but um, I'm not sure whether they pursued that option or not. But you know, obviously, um, the result kind of speaks for itself. Yeah, actually, I read it. I read a bit that today that, and there was a um. There was a I can't remember his name, but there was a, a, um, a an expert lawyer from who, who works in that area saying that once you get into that administrative battle, it becomes a bit like guerrilla warfare. You can kind of slow things down, but you can't, and you can kind of hope that you make it difficult enough to for people to pull out, but you don't really have that power anymore. No, the power gets taken away, then it goes through the court system, and we know that the courts cost a lot of money and cost a lot of time, so you are kind of a little bit, um, and you know, there's no kind of guaranteed outcome that the findings will go your way. So, it can be, that can be pretty traumatic within within itself. But you just, you'd hope that, um, you know, today, you know, 2020, that you know, the moral kind of compass would kind of say that okay, well, this this is an old site, an ancient site, which means something to these people. So, 
within the laws, again, we can do it, but within our kind of moral and ethical setting that, um, that we won't. And, I mean, Rio Tinto have issued an apology to the PKKP mob. Um, in your view, what's the significance of an apology like that? And um, I'm not sure if you know how it's been received by the PKK mob, but, yeah, can you speak to that at all? Yeah, well, you know, apology is an apology, but it needs to be followed up with action. Um, and unfortunately, you know, they can't take, you know, um, the actions back, but they can kind of, you know, walk through the kind of process of kind of, you know, because they would need, need to have a relationship there. And, you know, my understanding is that they've had a relationship for some time, so there's got to be a fair bit of kind of, you know, rebuilding that relationship. So I think um, that the apology is one thing, um, but, you know, following that with actions um, is another. So um, we kind of, I guess, you know, we've kind of reached out to the PKK mob and, you know, if we can lend any assistance in that kind of further negotiation or to do so. Yeah, and you've said in the in the statement that you put out through Native Title Council that, you know, it's not unusual for traditional owner groups to have long-term and ongoing relationships with mining companies, um, yeah. you know, and, 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 and um, I'm wondering, you know, um, what, is, what is the state of um, native title in Australia? And, you know, if you can put, maybe explain it for lay people as well, because I know it can be a comp- pretty confusing area of law. Um, what is native yeah. title in Australia and what are, what are its strengths and weaknesses as, as a tool for Aboriginal people? Yeah, so just to kind of bring your listeners up to speed, so Native Title, um, so tomorrow is Mabo Day. Um, for those people out there who don't know, Daddy Mabo and his people up there at the um, Toronto Strait um, fought, you know, I think it's the best part of the decade in the courts, all the way to the High Court to get their, their rights legally recognised. Um, so when English came to Australia, they declared the, um, the lands of Terranoius, which um, it's a Latin term which it's barren land, um, there's no law, there's no custom, um, basically no people here. Um, and you know, what the landmark Marbo decision did is actually said, well, hang on, there's always people here and we've got laws and we've got customs and just because we didn't have the fence over there, we had that river, we had that mountain range and we had laws and customs related to, to, related to the land. So there's a pretty big landmark decision that took place in 1992. So that's um, nearly 30 years and track now, and, but um, we've still got a way to go. So the progress of native title is kind of a long one. Um, and if your um, community want to, you know, take a native title claim, you'll probably be locked in that process for, you know, the best part of a decade, if not longer, um, with no kind of guaranteed outcome on the other side. So it can be, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty tough going. But what it does do is if you're successful... It says um, in the courts, and the court says no one can take this away, that you're the traditional people of that country and you've been there forever practising law and custom for, for basically forever, even though through adversity over the last 200 years of kind of, you know, settlement, um, new air lands being taken away from our people. Okay, and um, and so you've said in, in the statement from, um, in that same statement that, um, you know, legislative reform is needed to ensure that TOs have greater leverage and power in these kinds of decisions. Um, and what's the what's the sort of state of reform, and what kind of legislative reform um, do do you and the and the council have in mind um, regarding regarding how to how to further 
you know what you've, what you've been describing sounds like it's you know setting people up for pretty tough battles um and it's you know it sounds like it sounds like it's the best the best one of the best recourses that people have at the moment but what what would what would reform look like and what is it that um that that you're fighting for yeah, so there's no legislative changes will just continue to happen. And as I said in the, in the press release, this happens not, not only for mining companies, but other, um, you know, whether it be government departments um, or others doing kind of any kind of, you know, construction. Um, this happens, like, on an everyday basis. It's something that we see often. It's great that this this is kind of, you know, create, may create some momentum for change. Um, so... WA um, Act is under um, review at the moment, so hopefully once the COVID kind of restrictions left, they can you know further kind of progress that and, and get some change happening there. Um, but what we're calling for is kind of a national standard um, of cultural heritage legislation because each state has their own kind of way of doing business, and you know, you know some frankly aren't aren't very good at all, and that's why we see the kind of you know the um, the cultural heritage being destroyed. Black fellas aren't necessarily against, um, you know, development, etc. but we want to have the kind of, you know, say what happens on our land. Um, and, you know, we think that, um, you know, reform in the legislation from from, from the Commonwealth level to raise the bar of protection um, would play a key role in that. Yeah, and I also also read this week that, um, and I heard, I heard a couple of interviews that seemed to indicate that uh, a lot of the... A lot of it seemed to be that you know the state minister was saying that he you know the federal minister hadn't gotten to him in time, and the federal minister was saying he never heard about it till after that happened. And there seemed to be that you know like you know breakdowns at every level of the kind of bureaucratic hierarchy, and you know and and as you've sort of indicated, um, this it's not as though it's not as though this doesn't happen regularly. Like you know this matters made it into the news cycle, but um, it's far from being um, unusual. Is that the case? Yeah, so I think that, yeah, that's right. You get lost in the bureaucracy. Um, you know, there's a lot of bureaucracy and red tape you have to kind of cut through. Um, and I guess it's kind of like at the 11th hour, um, sort of a state of execution kind of moment. Um, so unfortunately, it kind of didn't get to the right people. Um, and, you know, what happened happened. So this is kind of what we're saying. If the, if the law's not changed, like, you'll continue to see cases like this um I kind of, you know, there's, like I said, like this happens on a, on a all too regular basis. But um, yeah, until the laws change, it just continue to continue to happen. Um, and Jamie, I know you're also on um, Victoria's Treaty Assembly Board. Um, can you talk to listeners a little bit about um, what that is and what you're up to at the moment, and how that how that relates to um, this other kind of broader legislative reform? Yeah, so say we say it's kind of um, down here in um, Victoria, it's kind of, you know, a treaty, kind of giving you know, power back to the people. Um, and, you know, if you kind of relate it to cultural heritage law, um, that we've kind of take that, um, we'll take ownership of that, that law and we've, we've kind of, you know, take ownership of the Act, et cetera. So the, the power then lies within the people. So um, we're, we're kind of just at the beginning of the treaty process here. So over the next um, three years, that we'll be building the framework um, for mobs to actually go and negotiate under. Um, so we aren't um, charged with the duty of actually negotiating treaties or, or a treaty. We're setting up the rules so the treaty, treaties will be um, negotiated under. So hopefully that gets completed um, by, you know, 2022 sometime and then, you know, 
communities can actually enter then to treaty negotiations with the state of Victoria. And how can um, how can listeners, you know, get involved or find out more about treaty in Victoria, and and where can they find out a bit more about um, you know legislative reform to native title? Yeah, so they can jump on the um, on the First Peoples Assembly's website. Um, jump on there, you can read up. There's plenty of information there about you know how we got to this point. And you know what we're required to do, um, you know, in the next three years. What was what the duties that we've been charged to do? Um, they can jump on our website, um, National Native Title Council, and speak about some of the public positions that we've got. Um, so that's just um, nationalnativetitlecouncil.com.au. You can jump on there. Um, so that's sort of certain good places to start. Um, I access website. Um, it's also a good place, a good resource to jump on as well. Hey, um, Jamie, thanks so much for calling in this evening, bud. No worries. I'm um, going to finish up, but is there any shout-outs you wanted to do before we uh, before we throw to a track? Uh, i just shout-out to all my people down the southwest there, good in Jamara country. Um, hope you're listening, my elders, my people. Um, hope, to, hope to see you again soon. Beautiful, man. Thank you so much. Cheers, mate. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You're on 3 Triple R 102.7 FM. Just speaking to Jamie Lowe, Gundajmara Jabarang Man, Chief Executive of the National Native Title Council and member of Victoria's Treaty Assembly, Paul Francis, whose uncle David Dungar Jr., died in custody in disturbingly disturbingly similar circumstances to George Floyd in Minneapolis, wrote, and has had published a message of solidarity to the uprising in the US. That message was published on May 31st at solidarity.net.au and I'm now going to read that message. Paul Francis writes, I am the nephew of David Dungai Jr., a Dungari man who was killed by prison guards in Long Bay Jail in December 2015. I want to send a message of solidarity to everyone on the streets in the United States fighting for justice for George Floyd. I really feel for the family of George Floyd and want them to know we feel their pain and stand with them. When I saw the video of George Floyd being murdered, I had to stop the footage. It took me straight back to when I first saw the video of my uncle's death. Both men died from positional asphyxia. This happens when police or prison officers restrain someone face down with too much pressure. Both men were continuously saying, I can't breathe, and begging for their lives. Both men had multiple officers restraining them, pushing them into the ground, and ignoring their cries for help until they took their last breath. In the case of David Dungai Jr., He was alone in his cell eating a packet of biscuits. Because he was a diabetic, a nurse was worried about his sugar levels and asked him to stop. But he knew how to manage his diabetes and they were his biscuits, so he refused. A riot squad stormed his cell over a packet of biscuits and pushed him into the ground until he died. George Floyd was doing nothing wrong either. In both Australia and the United States, if you're black the police and the justice system are going to target you. It's appalling. There is so much injustice. 
All my life I have experienced harassment. We get pulled over or stopped and searched. Not just from police. Even going to the local convenience store you get continually watched. There's terrible racism in the education system too, in housing and employment right across society. I feel like it's worse than it ever has ever been. People would shoot us if they could get away with it. Last year a young Aboriginal man was shot dead by police in a family house in Nuanamu. Police and prison guards use violence against us just for a power rush. They want to show they have total control. They know they have the government behind them no matter how badly they abuse their authority. In the case of David Dungai Jr., the six officers who killed him are still walking around free. Some have even been promoted. The masses of people in the streets in the United States calling for justice is amazing. That is the only force that can hold the police accountable. More people are starting to realise the injustices against black people and against First Nations people everywhere. In Minneapolis and other cities, it's not just black people out there protesting. There are white people too, people from many backgrounds jumping on board and showing their support. I've seen on the news that they have said that they will charge one of the officers who killed George Floyd. But it's one thing to get charges and another to get justice. The court system is so corrupt and works to protect police and prison guards. After my uncle's death, there was a coronial inquest, but they knew the result before the case even started. The coroner found there was no justification for the riot squad to rush my uncle's cell. He found that the use of force was a cause of death, but there were no recommendations or referrals for charges to be laid, no consequences whatsoever. The inquest might be over, but our fight for justice is not. We will be starting a campaign in June for the Department of Public Prosecutions to lay charges and the Safe Work Authority to also prosecute the guards that killed David Dongar Jr. We don't get the same big response in Australia as they do in the United States with the Black Lives Matter movement, but we have had many people, both First Nations and non-Indigenous people, standing with us. We can build on that. We need many more to join us. We can take inspiration from the United States and get back out on the streets in our own backyard where there is so much brutality against black people too. That's the only way to get justice. They were the words of Paul Francis, whose uncle David Dungai Jr. died in custody in disturbingly similar circumstances to George Floyd in Minneapolis. Paul wrote and had that published as a message of solidarity with the uprising in the US. It was published on May 31st, 2020. Triple R. Now, formerly the National Indigenous Arts Awards, uh, the Australian Council for the Arts First Nations Arts Awards recognise and celebrate the outstanding creativity and lifetime achievements of First Nations artists. Uh, these significant awards are held each year on May 27 to mark the anniversary of the 1967 rec- referendum. Uh, Thea Anamara Perkins is an Aranda and Kalkadoon woman with an emerging full-time artistic practice. She works primarily in painting and installation and explores her Indigenous identity, as well as uh, conceptual investigations into art making itself. In 2019, she was a finalist in the Archibald Prize and the Brett Whiteley Travelling Scholarship. Uh, She grew up and is still based in Sydney and has family ties to the Redfern community. And Thea is um, now the 2020 recipient of Australian Council's 
for the Arts' uh, Dreaming Award for Emerging Artists. And I have Thea on the line. Thea, welcome to the mission and thanks so much for calling in. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, really good. Where are you calling in from this evening? I'm on Gadigal Land in Sydney. Beautiful. And you live up that way, hey? Yeah. Cool. Um, hey, congratulations on your award. Um, was there like a ceremony in person or how did you how did you get your award? Well, it was actually, um, they did this clever thing where they pre-recorded it and then stitched it all together. So there was kind of a beautiful live stream with with all of the other recipients, which was fantastic. Yeah, great. And did you know about it like before the announcement or how, I know those things sometimes they like, you know, you, they tell you, but you're not allowed to talk about it. Were you in the know or? Yeah, yeah, I was. And it was really, yeah, it was really hard to keep it all under wraps. <laughs> yeah, cool. Um, so pretty exciting. Um, can you tell us a little bit about like your arts practice and how you came to it and, um, you know, what you've been doing up to now? Um, yeah. And, 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 you know, leading up to, to this, um, to this big award. Well, um, I have a primary, uh, painting primarily, but I do a bit of um, installation. And, yeah, I've just been looking through a lot of family archives and working with some of the pictures there. And because my family has, like, um, been involved with politics. Um, so, yeah, I became interested in, uh, like, and it's always, like, especially in the 70s and the 80s, it's a time period that I have a great kind of you know, um, fondness for, um, and I'm kind of in awe of the energy and the radical spirit of the times. And then it also, from there, I came to look at all of the protests, posters from the time and just think what great bold images they are and, like, think of the kind of community and the spirit and the people power that kind of attended those images. And then it kind of, um, from there, I wanted to kind of reprise that imagery um, and in the last few years, um, I've been going up to Alison doing some work with um, Tanganjira artists. Um, and Tanganjira catered to the town camps up there. And I did some like works with the ladies that were in um, for Tanandi and stuff like that. But um, yeah, and then it kind of, um, when I was thinking about kind of, you know, making these posters, I also wanted, you know, to give people voice. And so the idea came to, do some workshops and actually get people to, you know, represent themselves and speak for themselves, but to kind of, and then to collate that um, text and imagery and, um, yeah, create some screen printed um, posters. So is the award for, like, is the award award in recognition of the work you've done on this project and then it will, um, part of the award is that it facilitates the next stages of it? Uh, yeah, well, the award, um, I, it's, it's, it was, you apply for the funds to do this project. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. And kind of like get support letters and all that kind of thing. Cool. So, um, so it's looking at, um, protest posters from the 70s and 80s. What, what's your own, um, sort of links, um, both in like, you know, in your interest as an activist, but in your, you know, you have family links to, um, you know, activism and politics and of that period. And, you know, what's, um, what's important to you about that period? Well, um, personally, um, you know, my um, grandfather, um, Charlie, was um, very involved in politics. And, you know, and my, um, definitely my auntie Rachel has carried that on through film and like my mum, Hedy, through her work in, um, in the arts, but um, and and all my family really have always been um, really actively involved, and you know, so it's 
um, always, you know, something that um, I felt that it's important to kind of stand up and, um, you know, speak out and make try and make a change. And, and all, being close to those people, I really feel that it's something that everyone can do, you know. And so, and I think that that's a, you know, a really, a really important thing about that time period is that, you know, there was, it was really, was a people power kind of thing and everyone, you know, and it was the kind of, I guess, the numbers <laughs> and the energy was amazing. Yeah, and, and, and um, tell us a little bit about the, like, the process that you um, have planned for um, recreating these posters and, and I know you work creatively in that kind of facilitating and curatorial way with other artists and talk us a little bit about um, about your plans to I know you're going up to work with um, with Tungajia communities in, in Central Australia again yeah yeah well so the idea will be that um, I will go and do some workshops but not only with Tungajira but with the town camps around Alice Springs in order to include people that you know might not necessarily have an art making background and then, yeah, I'll be collating the imagery and kind of putting them together into posters with the help of, um, and with, like, um, to kind of, like, collate them printed um, in order to kind of, because there's a proliferation of um, digital things, but I thought what's really beautiful about those original posters is that they were that handmade quality of the screen printing. And then the idea is to sell or auction the posters with the proceeds going to Seed Mob and the artists involved and then make the posters free for digital download so that anyone can use them and, yeah, and kind of also bring back that idea of spreading these messages. Yeah, cool. And you're involved with um, Seed, I know, as well. Can you tell listeners a little bit about what Seed is and, and, and what your role has been with them? Um, Seed is an Indigenous-led climate activism for, um, you know, young Indigenous people, um, yeah, and I've been sort of variously involved in some of their workshops interstate, been to a lot of their protests and um, are in kind of in, are in their network. And my sister, Lily, who's an coordinator for Sydney, so we do a lot, yeah, do a lot of work with them. But they're a really strong, amazing grassroots organisation. Yeah, great. Um Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna wind up. Um, it's been really good to speak with you, Thea. Uh, is there any anyone you want to give a shout out to, or anything else you want to say, just while you're on the air? Yeah, I guess I'm um, just a, um, a thank you, Tongue and Jira artist, and yeah. All right, beautiful. Hey, um, thanks so much. Great to have you on on the air, and congratulations again on your award. And um, you know, being an Islander man from Central Australia myself. I wouldn't be surprised if I um, saw you up there. So, um, yeah, that um, sounds like a really exciting project and um, and good luck with it all. Thank you so much. And, yeah, look forward to seeing you up there too, Declan. All right, take it easy. Triple Thanks for tuning in. My name is Declan Ferber-Gillick. Uh, I'm on the mission for this week, next week and the week after. Jump on Facebook and um, check out the um, the event hosted by Warriors of Aboriginal Resistance this Saturday, 6th of June, uh, 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. about stopping black deaths in custody. Um, 
justice for George Floyd and um, and the movement over there, and for all of the all of the people on our own country. Till then, stay safe. Big love. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>